0: We hope you enjoy this interview with Scottish football boss Neil Doncaster. It was recorded before the decision to suspend Scottish football over the coronavirus. Hello and welcome to the Price of Football podcast with me, Kevin Day, and Kieran Maguire, Professor, Baron, Director, Guru, Leader of Financial Football... Liverpool University. I oh, just all the words that the producer tells me to use over a series, <laughs> I'm throwing out together. Now, Kieran, we have been promising this for some time. We have indeed. We have, like, and we're, but we're men of a certain age, so it's taken time to deliver it. Uh, well, Mrs. Day has asked me to point out. I've also been promising a new door for that kitchen cupboard since <laughs> 2017, and that's still not fixed. But finally, it's our it's our long promised Scottish football special, and I'm delighted to welcome uh, Supremo. Neil Doncaster, who's Chief Executive of the Scottish Professional Football League uh, Responsible for all top four divisions in Scotland Welcome to the show Thank you very much We've never had a Suprema on before Both, both <laughs> Kira and I are very excited to have a Suprema on um, You were Chief Executive at Norwich, weren't you? For yep, a, a yeah, time, I, so. I started
1: there in 1997 and left there in 2009 So yeah, just yeah. over 11 years with, uh, with Norwich City
0: it's, You'll be pleased to know that Norwich is very rarely mentioned on this pod Except in uh, glowing terms as a, it's as a, a fantastic family community football club. Yes, I've had uh, some great days at Norwich as a Palace fan and also as a broadcaster as well. It was a very welcoming club. Well, I was slightly ashamed of um, Simon Jordan when I was there once. I spent a day with Delia, who was lovely and very accommodating yep. and very kind. And Simon Jordan our, who was our chairman at the time who... You can smell him before you see him. Basically, it in the <laughs> crown of perfume, and literally said to do this. with What have you got a trophy cabinet for? You ain't won anything. It's like well, seriously. So, like, a have some humility. B have you seen ours? We haven't. Even, somebody who's allergic to silver could sleep in our trophy cabinet quite happily. Which is, but it's only recently that the Scottish Premier League and the other leagues have joined together as one unit, hasn't it? Well, we merged. Um, so there was a breakaway back in uh,
1: 1998, which was very much modelled along the uh, the Premier League uh, breakaway in 1992. So the, the top division split away from the Scottish Football League uh, in 1998 And we were able to remerge them back together Create one League of 42 in 2013
0: OK, and are the Premier League clubs happy that you're all one unit now?
1: Well, ultimately you can't do anything unless the clubs you know want you to do it So right. we're very much a members organisation um, But the, the circumstances in 2013 allowed us to uh, create a, a big deal, if you like, for the game uh, and that involved creating a pyramid uh, for the country. We hadn't had a pyramid, you know, so you mm. couldn't take a, a club from the public park all the way to Hamden before then. So that pyramid was uh, created in 2013, but also playoffs uh, between the second bottom in the uh, Scottish Premiership and the uh, uh, from the division below. Uh, and also a redistribution of the game's money from the top tier, particularly down to the second tier, but also across the whole, the entire game. So I think it was a, a, a big deal that worked for the entire game, and it took quite a long time to bring it together.
0: But the clubs wanted it, and ultimately we were able to deliver it. I've, t- two big questions we'll get to. First of all is, can we get Beric back? <laughs> so that'll, be, that'll be a discussion for later on. Yes, Paul Berwick. I, 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 want, I want to get this out of the way because I don't want this conversation to be dominated by Celtic and Rangers. Because I think it's only fair that we reflect the rest of Scottish football. And I've got family in Scotland. I love Scotland. I go to Edinburgh every year. I'm a big fan of Scottish football. So I want this to be a positive celebration. And I want it, I want to get the Celtic Rangers discussion out of the way. It seems to me that there are two schools of thought when you speak to Scottish journalists. One is that if Celtic and Rangers weren't part of Scottish football, it would be a financial disaster. The other is that it would actually be good for the game in Scotland because it would encourage more competition and you'd maybe get bigger mm-hmm. crowds. And this is a hypothetical question. I'm not asking you to, luring you into announcing that they're living. But <laughs> where would Scottish football be without those two, those two clubs? Well, they generate a huge amount
1: of uh, the game's GDP, without, without any doubt. Um, they are global um, giants in terms of the, the brands, you know, they're recognised across the world. Uh, the Old Firm derby matches are arguably as big as any game anywhere else in the world. So certainly they're they're, they're important, they're big, but so are a number of other clubs. You know, we've had uh, other clubs, Aberdeen, uh, Hibs, Hearts are, are obviously the, the next biggest three, if you like, by GDP. Um, but other clubs, you know, taking part in European football over the years. So Scottish football is more than just two clubs, but without a doubt, um, those two clubs are. Uh, powerhouses, if you like, within the Scottish game.
0: Are there still rumblings? Do you still get the odds, you know, disconcerted? So your Rangers can who say we should be in English football, we should be in... The, yeah, there was talk of a Scandinavian league several years back. Yeah, there was,
1: there was a, a discussions around a, an Atlantic league uh, years ago, but I, I personally have the view that we're likely to get more cross-border leagues in the future. Um, and I think wafer from being in a position where they perhaps were very anti the idea of leagues merging together, I think they perhaps see uh, merged leagues as a way of trying to bridge the financial gap between the the haves and the have-nots. I mean, you don't need to go back that long in Scottish football terms to look at you know, the likes of Chris Woods, uh, Terry Butcher, mm. uh, Paul Gascoigne. You know, they were probably amongst the best-paid players anywhere in the UK at the time and all playing in Glasgow. And that's because the TV money south of the border wasn't vastly different from what it was in Scotland. And that was the case throughout Europe. There was a a fairly level playing field. What's happened is you've had a huge polarisation of money. Uh, The the haves have accelerated away, so the big five leagues have accelerated away from the rest, and the second tier leagues have been left behind. For UEFA to try and bridge that gap by taking money away from the big five is perhaps unrealistic, as much as some people would like them to do that. Um, but what I do think is that UEFA will welcome the idea of leagues banding together to create bigger economic units and perhaps that way try and help bridge the gap and stop the polarisation. So we've seen speculation recently about the Belgian and Dutch leagues, uh, and they, uh, they are understood to be carrying out a piece of work to explore whether a merged league across those two countries would work. Um, you could certainly see something across scandinavia working well uh, just based on the geography perhaps portugal and spain um, our issue is that our nearest neighbor the one with whom we, you know, we share a common language is economically so uh, far away from us now that's not to say uh, it won't ever happen uh, i think there were discussions that took place um, probably around about 18 years ago around about the time of itv digital now those didn't come to anything, but there were there was a delegation that came up from the the English Football League to Glasgow uh, to talk about exactly that that uh, that subject. So cross border leagues, I think, are coming down the track. Um, ultimately, any party you need an invitation to, yeah. and it may be there'll be some sort of economic shock, uh, or political shock, or technology shock that that unsettles the environment and makes cross border leagues more likely. But I, I do think that at some point in the future we will see cross-border leagues, and who knows where that might take us.
0: Well, we'll be talking about Brexit later on, which is a very clever way to lean Kieran, it. It makes we've talked about regional leagues in England quite a lot on this pod, and, and it also makes sense, does it, as well? Uh, we talk about Berwick jokingly, but Berwick's in England, but in the Scottish leagues. For a club like Carlisle, for example, it would almost make more sense for them to be playing Scottish teams than, than English teams, wouldn't it? That, that's certainly one consideration. However...
2: If you, if you talk to fans and, and following the, uh, the, the show where I think we discussed the issue of regional leagues, there was a big pushback uh, that came from fan bases because they said, actually, if I'm a Carlisle fan, going down to London could be quite a good experience. And also, if you are in Cambridge or if you are in Plymouth, Everywhere is is a far distance, so it doesn't actually make a lot of difference. Um, And therefore, it could be as far as Berwick fans are concerned, the historical rivalries that they've brought up with other clubs are probably more important than the opportunity to to play against Carlisle or or other other areas.
1: Yes, certainly regional leagues make sense at a certain level. But I think it's very difficult to deliver them. Um, there's certainly been a lot of resistance to the idea of regional leagues within Scottish football, particularly from certain clubs and, and certain fan bases, and also within England. Again, the, the English Football League did try to uh, explore the idea of uh, regional leagues at, at one point, and, and it just didn't get any traction. Uh, I think you know people like the idea and the, what they see as the relevance of being a national league.
0: Well, you've got the Highland League as well in Scotland, which is very well supported. Is it simply a question of distance? Why those clubs are not part of the pyramid?
1: Well, the Highland League is part of the pyramid now. Um, we, you know, we, we've had teams from the, uh, the Highland League who've come into the, right. the game uh, over the years. Um, I think there is far more of an appetite now within the Highland League to be part of the pyramid and, and try and you know put yourself on a national stage and and see how far you can you can get. Um, I think Edinburgh City uh, have come in from the Lowland League. Have done very well. Um, and certainly, you look at other teams that have come in from the the old Highland League, and and have also done very well. So, uh, I I think the the pyramid as a as a concept is really important. It's absolutely essential that you you have the ambition and you can see a way through of taking your club, you know, all the way in the way that, that Wimbledon perhaps did, mm-hmm. all the way from the the parks through into the league pyramid. Uh, the the problem is at the moment it's a difficult route back um so it's a single um a playoff place for relegation from the bottom of the uh, uh the the SPFL so if you become bottom of the SPFL um, league 2 uh then you play off against the winner of a playoff between the highland and the lowland league so um quite difficult to get relegated but if you are relegated getting back is very very difficult
0: now a big part of our uh, pod near is questions from listeners and as you can imagine uh scottish football fans are quite a quite passionate bunch so we we did some sifting I think it's fair to say we did a bit of sifting through the questions. Um, So this is a question from Laurie Spence, and it's a final word, if you like, on the the big two, Celtic and Rangers. Laurie's question is, in a way, the league does perpetuate the Celtic and Rangers thing because nearly a quarter of the entire SPFL prize fund goes to those two, essentially, because they keep winning things.
1: Uh, yes, it's twenty three percent. If you look at the uh, uh, the, the percentages, so uh, the winner would get thirteen point four percent, second place gets nine point six percent, but bottom place gets four point seven five percent. So if you look at the ratio between you know top of the Premiership to bottom of the Premiership, it's just under three to one, and that's not wildly different from you know, many of the other leagues in Europe. Three to one is a fairly middle uh, middle ground in terms of the ratio from top to bottom. So that there is a, a good amount of sharing. And the uh, the merger in 2013 uh, created the facility to then share across the other leagues as well. So uh, only about 80% of the entire income goes to the top divisions. The rest of the other 20% goes to the other three divisions, now, even I, though the vast majority of yep. the money generated comes from the TV rights from the premiership.
0: Well, let's talk about Scottish football as a whole. And I'll, I'll ask Kieran his question first and then get your perspective of the like. Because, again, as with every football fan, you'll get... You'll get them arguing black is white and white is black. So James Morrison, for example, has pointed out with a very with the positive hat on that no club in Scotland has gone into administration since Hearts in 2013. And that was after a period of financial stress for a lot of Scottish clubs. But Eric Cleland worries about the number of clubs recently reporting fairly substantial losses, including you know, clubs like Rangers, Ross, Ross County, both the Dundee clubs, Falkirk. And well, which, Kieran, which of those is a more accurate reflection on... Scottish football, do you think? I, I think I think there's an element of, of both of those being the case.
2: Um, I, I monitor the accounts on an annual basis. Um, certainly what I've seen from the clubs which are reporting for 2019, uh, a few more of them appear to be taking more risks and therefore losing money. I've, I was quite surprised by Dundee when their results came out to have, to have lost 1.8 million, things of that nature. Um, my view is that the, the the enticement of getting into the, the, the Premiership is is a bit like the, what we're having in, in the championship down here in England, and therefore owners are coming in um, and they're being willing to 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 absorb those losses. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, I think the-, the second tier across the world is a difficult difficult place to be because uh, there is the ambition that you, you know fans expect their clubs to to show to try and get into the top tier. So it's no surprise that you see uh, losses being generated by clubs across the piece in the in the EFL Championship. Clearly, those numbers are a great deal bigger than the numbers we're seeing in the in the Scottish Championship. Um, we have a uh, we don't have detailed financial fair play rules in a way that some other leagues do. Um, I I like the idea of financial fair play rules. I think the idea of sustainable clubs is difficult to argue with, but the way in which those rules work in practice is perhaps the difficulty. Uh, we have a fairly straightforward set of rules, which were brought in in you know, post the last uh, set of uh, insolvencies of Rangers and, and Hearts, two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen, and those rules say that clubs have to pay their players on time and have to pay the tax man on time. And if you're doing that, then everything's okay.
2: And, and what happens if they? What's the sanctions if, uh, if they, they don't? Have, abide they have weather? to report
1: any default event within uh, two days of it happening. Um, If they report it, then they get an immediate uh, embargo, so they're not able to spend any more money until the uh, uh, default event, as it's called, is rectified. But if they don't report it, uh, then it's a pretty serious disciplinary issue. So uh, there there are quite swinging sanctions available to uh, the league in the event that a a club tries to hush it up. But also we've got in place rules uh, whereby the revenue reports to us any default in terms of tax. So there's quite a strong incentive to pay your tax and pay your players on time.
0: I'm actually fascinated by it. Part of the running joke on this pod is that my knowledge of accountancy and football finance is limited and my eyebrows get a very good workout every now and again. But that's the first time I've heard something positive that we haven't talked about. Because for all that we talk about financial fair play, Kieran, as you can understand, Neil, on this pod, it's a huge part of what we talk about because every football fan in England we'll mention those words, financial fair play, without knowing what they mean. I throw them about all the time in the pub before Palace games. And if somebody says to me, what do you mean by that? I just, I don't know. think there was some kind of podcast that explained it. But, but for all that we talk about financial fair play, those two rules, that you pay your players on time and you pay your tax, seems to me the bottom line, most sensible thing I've heard us discuss on this pod since we started doing
2: it. Well, I agree entirely. To, to me, as, as somebody that used to do insolvency work, it's all about cash now the one thing that you can do with cash is you make sure you pay your bills and that's why companies don't go bust and football clubs don't go bust because of lack of profits or because of lack of revenue it's because they run out of cash so if you're monitoring cash which i think is the right thing to do and it's something which i've always argued for um then ultimately if you've got if you've got a rich owner that wants to put a lot of money into the club there's there's ways of dealing with that and From my point of view, and it's a terrible thing to say, is that for every rule that there's a loophole, once you start to get into the complexities of financial fair play, this is a simple and effective way of making sure that what we're ultimately wanting, which is that football club's still going to be around in five years' time, that's going to be achieved.
1: Yeah, I think that the danger of financial fair play rules is that they limit ambition and you have to start trying to create loopholes that you can crawl through. Uh, a simple system to me is is the, the far more sensible approach and to date, you know, clubs uh, since 2013, we haven't seen any insolvencies and, you know, we we see uh, players uh, being paid by clubs and the taxman being paid at the same time as well.
0: Well, also, my worry with financial fair plays, and again, it's a running theme, is the, the bigger clubs can employ the better lawyers to get around it. But there are clubs that it's very easy to fall foul of it without... Meaning to as well, wasn't it? Because it seems to me that you sometimes you struggle. No, you not you. That's that's. I apologise for it, even suggesting. You know, I and it's no point saying I struggle. But let's say the more intelligent football fan can struggle to understand. We know from correspondence that some club chairman struggle to understand it. So there is that worry that it could be inadvertently breached, isn't it?
2: Yes, and, and what's wrong with being ambitious? I, mean, I think Neil's inferred exactly those that same that same principle. Um, We've got clubs in, in in the UK or in England which have got huge amounts of debt which are nowhere near breaching financial fair play rules and then you've got other clubs with no debt which are being constantly monitored. Um, if you have any form of rules that that limit ambition, then you are creating a glass ceiling. Uh, whether that's the intention or not, that's certainly the consequence. And part of me and part of you, as, as we, we support rival clubs, is that... We quite like the idea of somebody walking into our club, writing out a cheque for a billion pounds, and, and we're just going to go on that ride for a few years. Um, and you know, to, to deny that sort of, uh, that crazy ambition is crazy.
0: Well, you're a Brighton fan, so most of your ambition is getting your own quinoa <laughs> farm, isn't it, essentially? <laughs> well, you know, that, a Labrador for each fan. Yeah. That's how and and that, a pet ostrich. And the pet ostrich. I mean, you, you've, probably, you've got a llama farm, haven't you? <laughs> I know you have. We've talked a lot on this pod, Neil, as well, about um, <coughs> both Kieran and I being old-fashioned football romantics, are so big fans of fan ownership and in Scotland we talked at length about Hearts recently and Mother World Party these are all clubs with healthy fan ownership is this something you encourage in Scottish football is it? I think fan
1: ownership um, I think fan engagement I don't think anyone can have any disagreement whatsoever uh, the involvement of fans uh, in and, and pr- proper and real consultation on the things that matter most to, to fans to me is fundamental to any well-run club whether you go the next step and go down the ownership route i think is potentially far more fraught. um i mean to me the best model is a benevolent dictator someone who has the wherewithal to be able to write the check if things get difficult uh, and you've got clarity of decision making so for me the best model for a professional club is where you've got clarity of decision making and the ability to fund losses uh Ultimately, if there's a financial shortfall in a fan-owned club, well, the banks aren't going to lend you any more money. Mm. Where do you go? And I think that's the real issue. For for part-time community clubs, I don't have any problem with with fan ownership at all. But for uh, the bigger numbers, more full-time professional clubs, I think it is a difficult uh, concept. Um, it's not, you know, there are models that have proven to be successful, but fundamentally you have to ask yourself where is the money coming from when there's a shortfall and at a time when the banks were lending money to football clubs well that's the answer but now that they're not uh far more difficult so uh i think it's important to keep an open mind no one model is the same as any other and you know ultimately what you want is well-run clubs whether they're owned by the fans or owned by an individual owner
0: i present a football finance podcast with a benevolent dictator so I understand <laughs> that's the model he likes the most. But Kira, is there a... Because we do talk about the football fair. And again, like I say, I'm, instinctively, I feel like the German model. I'd like all fat clubs to be on my... But is there a level of club beyond which you get too big to be run by fans? Well, certainly uh, in England, if, if, I don't think it would be...
2: Very feasible for a club in the championship to operate. We've just seen Wick and Wanderers go out from being a fan-owned club to being taken over by a new American guy, and the reason why was the club couldn't pay its bills. So, you know if you have a fan-owned club which goes bust, it's still a club that's gone bust, uh, yeah. and 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 if those bills come in, as as Neil's inferred, you've got a thousand people who say, well, that's our club but there's not a thousand people that could be dipping their hands into their pockets. So having somebody's got to take ultimate responsibility. Uh, Portsmouth have gone back into private ownership in effect. Wickham's done the same. Uh, What what they've achieved in Motherwell I think is absolutely amazing. Uh, And some of the other clubs in in scotland but one thing i do notice about those clubs is that they set a budget and they stick to it and they don't try to live within their means and i think the scottish system allows them to do that you've got kilmarnock who finished third last season is that right Uh, i should should tell you i can't (laughs) recall (laughs) um i think i think they finished third last season their accounts came out recently kilmarnock have not bought a player for cash for at least six years right um but they they live within their means on that basis, good recruitment, good management, and and they see the rewards on the pitch. You can't do that south of the border, given the amount of of the resources that the people you're competing against are concerned. I think the Scottish, without being rude to the other Scottish clubs, they accept that they're probably not going to be challenging Rangers and Celtic on a season-by-season basis. So if we're playing in the Scottish Premiership, let's have a great time uh, and we'll we'll set a sensible budget, we'll stick to it, and we'll try to break even. And, And that's worked
0: we know how much broadcasting rights are important to the finances of a football club. We talk about it all the time. I think it's fair to say, Neil, that your broadcasting deal uh, created a lot of uh, interest from Scottish football fans, I have to say. Uh, it's in the nature of football fans that they don't tend to tweet praise. Um, so I, I, I'm trying to find a way, a nice way of saying it. They've been quite critical, essentially. Um, Dominic Jack, for example, wonders whether Sky's offer was so much more financially significant than BT's when he says the theory is that BT's coverage is better. Craig Birch talks about allowing Sky to hold the rights to all 42 clubs until... The next day, what's? are you happy? You're not going to say no, you're not, but presumably the broadcasting deal is something that you're happy with in Scotland.
1: Yeah, well, we went through a process in in 2018 and uh, that delivered an outcome which will mean that we have uh, the rights exclusively with Sky Sports from this summer, summer 2020. So I'd urge people to keep an open mind about what that looks like. Um, Sky have said that they will be uh, focusing very much on us and working with us to promote the Scottish game uh, hand in hand, uh, as a good partner should. Um, so I think let's keep an open mind. Uh, I, I believe them uh, when they say that, uh, and I think we'll see uh, the, the Scottish game given the the profile and the coverage that it that it uh, deserves next year by Sky Sports. Um, ultimately, we went through a process. Uh, it was a, an auction process, effectively. Uh, BT Sports and others had the ability to. Uh, bid up and and outbid Sky Sports, but Sky Sports won the rights. So we've had joint rights uh, shared between BT Sport and and Sky Sports, uh, certainly since 2012. um, Before that, uh, with uh, Satanta, Uh, they ended in 2009. Um, But 2009 was the last time that we had an exclusive partner. So for a whole generation of fans, they've seen the rights shared. So it's perhaps no surprise that uh, the, the broadcasters haven't given it the, the love, perhaps, that they show other other leagues. Um, I uh, am confident that we'll see a, a sea change in the approach um, in, the, uh, in the from the summer onwards with Sky Sports taking up the reins exclusively.
0: This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today in Notion? You do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from
2: project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company... Or a freelance football finance lecturer.
0: You can try Notion for free when you go to Notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters Notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's Notion.com slash price of football. and is part of that deal that other clubs in Scotland are shown on television as much as possible rather than the focus on the every Celtic and Rangers game being shown well, live on TV?
1: One of the differences is, is that we currently have 60 uh, games of the 228 shown live and that will go down to about uh, somewhere between 45 and 48, I suspect, uh, from next season. So it's very much the minority of games that are shown live uh, on television. And the reason for that it's quite deliberate. We're trying to promote the uh, Scottish football as being about being there in the stadium. So right. if you want to watch a team, you know, yeah, absolutely, you can uh, uh, watch live on, on television on Sky Sports. But what we're trying to drive is the in-stadium experience, and it's no surprise that per uh, head of the population, uh, we've got more uh, people coming to a game in Scotland than anywhere else in Europe. You know, really? Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's about uh, uh, one in forty-eight of the population. Uh, that the entire Scottish population will be at an SPFL game each weekend.
0: Well, that's really interesting, Kieran, cause instinctively, because instinctively, as I know Scottish football, instinctively, you, you, you kind of, in your head, you're seeing small stadiums with not many people in them. So that's really you know, outside yeah. the big. It's about, about
1: 100,000 people each weekend will be at an SPFL game.
0: That's really interesting.
2: And, and sort of on the back of that, you know, we've got the four divisions in Scottish football, you've got 42 clubs for. A, a country with a relatively small population. Um, I, I was talking to somebody this morning, connected to Dutch football, and and, and explaining that to them, and, and they were they were absolutely staggered because in the KNVB you've got thirty four clubs, and and the Dutch population is 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 you know what fourteen fifteen million. Is it is it feasible for for that to continue for the foreseeable future, as you're concerned, or uh, you know the the clubs seem perfectly happy? I I look at the numbers of the accounts, and the thing that always impresses me is that those clubs in the local divisions. They they cut their cloth accordingly, and they seem to be quite yeah. happy with the present situation.
1: It's it's more about the amount of full time professional clubs that you've got. So you've got you know roughly eighteen to twenty full time professional yep. clubs in in Scotland, and the rest are part time. Um, so you know, I don't think we're out of kilter with with the rest of Europe. I mean, ultimately there's you know, thousands of clubs. Um, we have a pyramid now. So you know, what we're really talking about I think in terms of you know how many clubs can a country support is really professional clubs, full time professional clubs.
0: So. In your bid to get more people in to watch games in Scotland, would you existentially prefer that English football wasn't shown on Scottish TV? <laughs> well, we've got a
1: joint, uh, a UK broadcast market, so that makes us very unusual. Um, you know, you've got a distinct market for Portugal, you've got a distinct market for Spain, so you have broadcasters for that particular market. You know, we're in an unusual situation where we're in the joint broadcast market. And that has some benefits in terms of the market pool when UEFA uh, money comes into play, um, but it also means that you know you're competing with other much bigger uh, uh, products, such as the uh, the English Premier League, you know, in Scotland. Uh, but but we're also seeing that across Europe. Yeah. So I think the the recent uh, overseas deal in Scandinavia that the English Premier League have announced is an absolutely vast sum of money. Is it mm. two billion over yeah. six years. I mean, yeah, it's an incredible sum money. of money. Yeah. Now that that money's got to come from somewhere. And the reality is that the, the poor old local Scandinavian leagues are going to be put under more pressure mm. because the must-have broadcast product in that country in those countries is the English Premier League, and it's the local domestic leagues that get squeezed.
0: Um, sponsorship of the Premier League is an issue that's come up with a lot of uh, listeners. It's currently sponsored by Labbrooks, and people want to know whether that will continue. Uh, Dean Walker has asked, is he thinks that the Labbrooks brand is far less visible now at recent games, it, he wants to know if that's right, and if so, is that, is that deliberate? And is there a discussion to be had about being sponsored by gambling companies? Because, again, that's one of the things that comes up week after week on, on our pod from listeners is the morality of, of leagues and clubs being sponsored by gambling companies.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a number of comments there. I mean, certainly uh, Labrook's as a brand is less visible, and that's because they decided to gift uh, a lot of their advertising space that their sponsorship buys from us uh, to Gamblerware, the gambling charity, but also to another charity uh, called Children with Cancer. So that's a decision they've taken. Um, I think it was Richard Masters at the, the Premier League uh, who said recently that they, the Premier League aren't sniffy about working with, with gambling companies, and that's, that's probably quite a good way of putting it. Gambling has always been a big contributor to the finances of football mm. throughout the UK. And actually, in the past, has contributed far more proportionally than it does at the moment. You know, it's slightly contrary to what mm. one might assume. But the football pools in the 1970s and 1980s actually brought in most of the commercial revenues that the, the game enjoyed. So gambling now actually brings in a far, far smaller percentage uh, the,
0: uh, of clubs' monies than it, than it ever used to. I'm going to have to explain to my 24-year-old son what the football pools <laughs> was now. But actually, do you know what? I, it's never occurred to me that that was gambling. Yeah, of course absolutely. of course, it was. I used to... It was the worst part of the year when you had to have Australian football teams on your pools coupon. It's a terrible, terrible time. I remember it well, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, that's, isn't that strange how you, your own morality judges things differently? So mm. It never occurred to me. I, I, I presume because of the amount of money... Involved watching your dad spend 10p a week in a football coupon, doesn't no, it? It, to... it
1: was the major funder of professional football in the UK, um, going back 30, 40 years. It's, it's so whilst, interesting, whilst, you know, money coming from gambling is still there, yeah, as a proportion of the overall amount of money that's raised by the game, it's much smaller than ever it was.
0: The, the broad debate around gambling, Kieran, I found very interesting because, as people point out, it is legal, yeah. and as long as people are made aware. That it is dangerous, and as long as the gambling companies, as they are trying to be, most of the responsible ones are trying to be responsible around issues of of, of not going mad gambling-wise. And football clubs all over the Europe would struggle without gambling because they're the only people who can afford to sponsor them. Is part of the, the ongoing debate, isn't it? I, I think they are. They are the biggest players in town for clubs of a certain
2: size. So, as far as the the big six clubs in in England are concerned. That, that's a market that, that the, the gambling companies can't afford, but certainly the likes of 32 Red, they, they sponsor a number of clubs in both England and Scotland, um, and as far as the clubs are concerned, and, and the fans are concerned, yet yeah, there, there doesn't appear to be an issue with that, because if it brings in additional funds which allows them to sign that centre forward who scores that goal in that derby and makes that difference to their lives, then you won't, you won't feel a section of the fan base concerned. Um Ultimately, I think, provided it is legal, then football clubs are entitled to do whatever they choose. This has got to be. This is much, this is a much bigger issue than that. Um, we, we've seen what's happened with uh, the tobacco industry historically, um, and that was a decision which was made centrally. That it, it, it shouldn't be for the football industry to pick up a particular moral compass. There are lots of things which are not great about society. There are lots of financial institutions which I don't particularly think have got a particularly good. Uh, history uh, and yet they are seen as as being benevolent and mm. and worthy um, and warranting sponsors.
0: Um, this is not strictly financial except in a, in a kind of sideways way. Why have you not got VAR
1: a uh, number of reasons um, I think it's new technology um, you've got to be very careful whenever you're implementing anything new that you don't inadvertently damage something very precious. and, and which,
0: football has been, which is being done before our eyes every, yeah, every uh, single football game. Uh,
1: to, to me, particularly in Scotland, the our brand is about passion, drama, excitement, and it's particularly about in-stadium uh, passion, drama and mm-hmm. excitement. And if you end up in a situation where people can't feel that they can celebrate a goal properly because they're not sure whether it's going to be chalked off, uh, I think you potentially really damage what Scottish football is all about. So I'm extremely concerned uh, about uh, VAR. Um, If it can't be made to work with all of the millions that exists um, in the big five leagues uh, and it can't be made to work well in those leagues, then I think you should be very, very careful uh, before there's any implementation in Scotland. Um, Aside from that, uh, there is the cost and it's likely to be a a seven-figure cost at a time when we know the game is very stretched financially. So um, I I can understand the desire to achieve uh, better decision-making. And VAR will give you more correct decisions. My concern is the cost of those greater amount of better decisions when you're never going to get to perfection. You can only get more better decisions, but the cost of that could be actually what makes people enjoy the games, the excitement, the passion, and the drama.
0: I know from my own family in Scotland that you've got enough conspiracy theorists about referees up there without throwing VAR being biased into the mix as well. Are you under any pressure from UEFA to introduce VAR?
1: No, I think the, uh, the referees who are very much part of the Scottish FA um, resp- set of responsibilities. Um, you know, they are keen to be able to uh, be working with VAR because clearly VAR works uh, or is used in, in UEFA matches. Uh, but from our point of view it's it's a, it's a league decision, it's a club decision and uh, I think the clubs are right to um, wait and see what emerges and whether the technology can be made to work in a way that doesn't damage the in-stadium atmosphere.
0: Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, the seismic upheaval you mentioned very early on in our conversation and uh, Brexit. Now, despite the fact that I think Brexit is an unmitigated disaster in every level, uh, I'm persuaded by my producer that I need to have a sense of balance on this which is pointless after what I've just said, but tell me about the impact Brexit might have on Scottish football, and is there a potential positive impact? This is the balance bit, because I'm old enough to remember a time when Palace, for example, had seven Scottish players, because you know back in until the the early nineties. So many English clubs look to Scotland for their players, which hasn't happened because of the yeah. influx of, of continental and European players. So I, I remember Jim Cannon oh, back at Palace very oh, well. Oh, what player Jim Cannon was, fierce, still wouldn't argue with him, fearsome man. But yes, but we so that was a model for a lot of English clubs as well, and, and that was one of the reasons why the Scottish football team had so much success in those decades. So tell us a little bit about Brexit, and is is there a positive possible outcome for you for this?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we don't have uh, rules in Scotland about the amount of homegrown players you can have in your matchday okay. squad. So we have we run a very liberal system, uh, and it's designed to give our clubs the very best chance of success, particularly in European competition. Uh, and the more freedom that we can give to our clubs, the the better uh, they can go out and try and recruit players from around the world who can a help them within your uh, European competition, but b potentially be sold on. Uh, for a profit, and we've certainly seen that in in recent years. Uh, Virgil van Dijk is just one of uh, a number of players who have been brought in from overseas and have uh, brought a lot of money into the the game in Scotland. So we have a system where uh, ultimately it's relatively uh, easy for clubs to bring in overseas players. Certainly no difficulty at all with players being brought in from uh, the EU at present, but equally around the world... Uh, the, the systems that, have exi- that exist in place in Scotland are, mean that it's it's a relatively easy thing to do to bring in players uh, from across the world. If you think that they're going to add to your uh, team and you can make a case for it, then generally you're allowed to do it. The the real risk with Brexit for us, because in most other terms we're already seen as a separate nation from, from yeah. England, but the real risk from us is that Brexit results in a, in a situation where we lose some of those freedoms – so one of the challenges that we have is is to work with the, uh, our friends in the English Premier League and in uh, the English Football League to ensure that we retain the level of uh, flexibility that our clubs enjoy at
0: present. But there is, because we talked on this pod, Kieran, about um, uh, Notts County, like smaller clubs in, in England who have three or four European players who won't be internationals, probably won't get the 70, the mythical 70 points. Presumably, that's a similar case for for a lot of Scottish clubs that they will have three or four European players who may potentially be required to.
1: Yeah, that, that that's the challenge. I mean, we have a panel system in place at the moment in in Scotland, which means that if uh, uh, clubs want to make a case, you know, if, if a player doesn't uh, qualify because of the amount of international games he may have played, he might be a young player, you know, just breaking into the international team, but they want you to come and make a case, then they can usually make a successful case and get that player brought in. And ultimately, it's for the benefit of the game in Scotland
2: overall. No. Will, will that decision be taken out of your hands if we move to a points-based I, system and it's effectively determined centrally? I, I hope like not.
1: Right. I hope not. I'm, and part of my work is to try and create the, the most flexible system that we can because if we lose that flexibility, then being no doubt, it will be severely damaging to the game in Scotland.
0: Now, I know we have time constraints because I know you have to be somewhere else and it's very kind of you to be here and also our producer... Hasn't spent any of his million pounds in the last half hour, so he's he's getting itchy. hasn't invested in something for quite a while. So, um, you've you've seen Kieran during this podcast. You've seen how uh, placid he is. How there's a certain element of Mount Rushmore about the face. Doesn't tend to get emotional or excited. You mentioned the third UEFA competition. Yeah, Kieran, yeah. he gets he gets very animated. He's a guinea, I think you will find. Um, what's the impact going to be on this this third UEFA competition? Is it good for you because it, it means more Scottish clubs will be involved in European tournament? Or is it bad because it means, uh, as here, things like the League Cup may have to make way yeah, for I d- extra games? Yeah,
1: I, I can understand the concerns, absolutely. I, and you know the League Cup uh, in England, just as it is in you know, the Bedford Cup in, in Scotland, is very precious and, a, and an important part of the footballing landscape. So I am absolutely understanding of the concerns that might exist about the future of the League Cup. To me, however... The third European competition uh, is not of itself a threat to the League Cup. Well, extended, I think the, the the expansion of dates uh, that, that UEFA appear to be proposing, that's where the threat occurs. But of itself, um, certainly I, I, the, the third competition uh, in European competition, if you... Get past the name, uh, the Europa Conference League, yes. um, then you know it. It absolutely will help Scottish teams. I mean, currently we, after the um, the, the round of thirty two results in the Europa League, uh, we're fourteenth oh. in the UEFA rankings. Now, if uh, we remain in, uh, if Scotland remains in fourteenth or fifteenth or position, then that will mean uh, a a fifth team uh, for us in Europe, um, you know, uh, two uh, teams in the Champions League. uh, One in the Europa League and two in the Europa Conference League. So that is, uh, you know, and that's all down to the success of our teams in Europe over the last couple of years. So, you know, Celtic and Rangers, particularly, uh, Rangers still in uh, Europe, uh, having beaten Braga uh, last week, uh, that's a huge result. Uh, So it's catapulted us from 26th into uh, 14th position. If we can keep hold of 14th or 15th place at the end of the season, then from the start of season 21-22,
0: that's a fifth European place but as importantly, a second Champions League place. Two more questions, one based on nostalgia and one very, very topical. Do you miss the home internationals? Would you bring them back? I, I do. I do. No, I do. I think uh, I mean,
1: I've i been lucky enough to be at uh, England-Scotland games uh, in, in recent years and they're fantastic occasions, whether they played at uh, at Hamden Park or Wembley, always tremendous occasions. And I think the game would be much the richer if we brought them back. Um, but we've talked already about fixture congestion. Yeah. Uh, the the problems created by extra European dates uh, and the Nations League was effectively a, a method of doing away with friendlies and trying to make everything competitive. So whether we can uh, see the return to home internationals uh, anytime soon, I'm I'm not so sure. But it's a shame.
0: Kieran would tell us, so if there was a financial recompense out of it, they would do it if someone's willing to sponsor it and pay the FAs enough money, they'd come back, wouldn't it? But
2: but we're talking about player fatigue, and you've only got to speak to some of the managers. They're already concerned. Uh, My my reservations in respect of the changes uh, proposed by UEFA is that Where's this extra six fixtures going to come from? In terms of the Champions League, you've got FIFA wanting to expand the world club competition. I appreciate there's a lot of politics between those two organisations. We've only just seen FIFA recently, I think in the last week or so, propose that cross-border, um, which we were talking about earlier, that the the idea of playing fixtures in other countries they are going to outlaw if they get their way. Um, I just don't see how you can squeeze more out of the players.
1: No, I agree. And, and that's why trying to protect our, uh, we have a winter break, um, two weekends, three weeks. Uh, it really helps the players, certainly in the second half of the season. The, the, the evidence is that uh, in terms of uh, long-term injuries, serious injuries, the level of uh, the incidence of those long-term injuries in the second half of the season is much reduced if you have a winter break. So you know, that is really the only time that our players are getting much of a break because there is no summer at the moment.
0: We've been promising this football special to our listeners for quite some time, uh, and I'm very pleased we've done it. And I'd like to thank you very much for for coming on and answering questions. I think there's still things left to explore in future when you're next down in London. No, but it, it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, uh,
1: I'm a big fan of Scottish football. I think it's uh, it's very authentic. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, particularly where money, there's so much money elsewhere in the game. Uh, I think some of that authenticity, some of that atmosphere, uh, uh, disappears. Um, I and mean, I've been at several at Premier League stadium where it's been very quiet and, and that's not for me what football's all about yeah I'm actually talking you about know.
0: I know. Quite, uh, <laughs> uh, you can yeah. barely hear a Labrador's tail wag Scottish
1: uh, football is all about passion drama and excitement and uh, that's what makes it such a privilege to be involved in it
0: brilliant Neil thank you very much thank you um, thank the, you Neil. Uh, The Price of Football is a Dap Dip production I'm saying that because Mr. Dapdip is sitting there himself. Um, if you do have questions for us, remember our Monday shows are all about uh, your questions. Send them into the questions at priceoffootball.com and put your reviews where you put your five-star reviews, which does algorithms. We haven't said algorithms for a while, have We're we? Not. So, but, um, thank you very much again, Neil, and safe journey home. Thank
1: you. I suck football.